that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Nobody's going to use this toy, we said. Who the heck cares? We'll go ahead and use it. We're using it for education. Der Interplanetare Podcast. Die Erforschung des Weltraums für das Wohl der gesamten Menschheit. Eure Gastgeber in England und Deutschland, Matthew Russell und Sven Neuhaus. Oh yeah, baby. baby Twigs. Bob Twigs, Stanford University. Nobody's going to have heard of Bob Twigs unless they're massively into CubeSats, I, I don't think. But uh, we'll get on to Bob Twigs in, in a bit. But yeah. before I do that, I'm going to, <laughs> I am going to introduce <laughs> Sven. Sven is one of the Spodcats. Hello. So uh, uh, Sven is my uh, guest co-host for today's episode or this week's episode, which is coming out on the new Monday launch date. Thanks for having me. Sven, whereabouts are you in the world? I'm in Dortmund in deep Germany. It's grey and rainy, like in London probably. <laughs> no, it's actually bright and sunny where I am right now. But uh, is there such a thing as shallow Germany, if Dortmund is deep Germany? <laughs> Yeah, maybe the coastal region. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks very much for doing this, Sven. So, Sven, you were you were, were badgering me to um, do more stuff on CubeSats and yeah. and and the like. What what why what, exactly. what what is about CubeSats that floats your boat? I think CubeSats uh, are total revolution in uh, satellite industry, as the same as maybe SpaceX did for the launch industry. They made it cheaper. Nowadays, it's just a fraction of the cost to launch your rockets. And CubeSats are the same thing for satellites. Now it's just a fraction of the cost to launch a satellite. Even universities or high school classes can do it. Even though they're much smaller, they can do what only the big satellites used to be able to do in a small form factor. It's a democratization of space, basically. Ah, yeah, the democratization of space. New space, perhaps. Yeah. It's worth mentioning here that the, what, what I've accidentally done is lifted the lid on, on an, in, an enormous topic. <laughs> so this might have to become a series of podcasts. Let's, let's see how we get on with these notes. But before we start, I thought it's worth mentioning on this day which is October the 26th, this comes out, uh, it, back in 1968, we had the Soviet cosmonaut Georgi Beregovoy on Soyuz 3, who did a four-day mission and became the earliest born human to ever go into orbit. So he kind of beats Yuri Gagarin's record, weirdly. So he's the first person ever born to go into orbit, which I think is quite cool because that will never be beaten, right? Yes, the time is running out. When was it born? 1921? Yeah. 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 I, I think it's going to be <laughs> unlikely that a someone over... It's a rather safe record now. <laughs> it is a very, very safe record. Yeah, so he'll, yeah, he'll be having his centenary soon, won't he, of his birth. So, yeah. yeah, you'd have to be extraordinary if you were going to be going into orbit. So, yeah, I think I think that record is going to be safe. Um, yes, he's yeah. he's three. Congratulations, <laughs> Georgi Timofeyevich. Yeah, Timofeyevich. It's the second name. Yeah, he. Um, yeah, so he's three months older than John Glenn. He's also pretty old when he went. In fact, well, John Glenn went in when he was really old in the space shuttle flight, of course, as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, th that flight, the Soyuz three one, was actually hot on the heels of the Apollo seven mission which was for 11 days. So you could see at that point that Russia is slipping behind 
the US in the old space race. You think so? At that point already, they were doing like in orbit, uh, oh, in orbit docking. Yeah, in orbit. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, they tried to. They tried to. Yeah, but yeah. they didn't quite do it. Yeah. So Apollo Seven did manage to do all sorts of maneuvers that I think must have been like mind blown for the Russians. They, they definitely that at that point the Americans are look to be like steaming ahead i wonder what the i wonder what the press was like at the time though around those uh, apollo 7 1968 I wasn't even born yeah no neither was i <laughs> neither was i my, bro- my brother was though it's, it's amazing isn't it kind of recent history anyway I, I wanted to speak just before we get on to nanosets i wanted to mention one space legend of the week because it's the it is the centenary of her birth and that is Sarah Lee Lippincott, legend. who is actually a legend. And I and it's one of those ones where I can't, I, I couldn't find an obituary, and the obituary seems to have have found its way off the internet because it was on some <laughs> on some sort of temporary web page. So you can see that it was there, but not there anymore. Uh, she worked on binary stars, and so she was a pioneer of what's known as astrometry, which is where you measure the movement of stars and their positions very, very accurately to try and determine more about them. And it's through that that she wrote papers, one of the papers called Astrometric Analysis of Lalonde 21185, where it looked like she'd actually discovered exoplanets. So so the, the stars were moving around and they seemed to have a companion that was much smaller than the mass of a star. So, uh, however... After a few years, that started to get discounted here and there. So it didn't look as though she did. But I think she got pretty, you know, a reasonable amount of fame from that. As uh, She worked with Peter van der Kamp and wrote his obituary as well. Uh, but I think she's mainly sort of this inspirational figure. And she had lots of students, one of them being Sandra Faber, who's a pretty legendary astronomer as well. So, yeah. Space legend of the week, Sarah Lee Lippincott. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. She was 99 years old last year. Yeah. Yeah. When she died. Yeah. 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 So she only died last year. Yeah. She would have been 100 today. Uh, she, the, I think the weirdest part of her life is she, she married Dave Garraway, who was the founding host of the Today Show. <laughs> which uh, that that was her first husband she also remarried christian b zimmerman after after dave garraway actually committed suicide so she so she, she also set up um laboratories to to help depression at, at uh, pennsylvania university after his suicide which Excellent. is so she obviously had a pretty sad moment in her life right there but uh yeah absolute space legend sarah lee lippincott so sven after that, yeah. sad, but uplifting, but sad story. <laughs> well, it's, um, let's talk about CubeSats. Let's talk about CubeSats. So we do have an interview with, with a guy called Corey Shields that, uh, Sven, you, you hooked up, and he works for Sat, yeah. SatNogs. Yeah, that's actually a non-profit organization. They provide ground stations for CubeSats. SatNogs is part of Libraspace, isn't it? Who, who, yeah. It's, they're really exciting, but let's not let's not uh, reveal too much about that because then then you need to listen to the interview. But, but <laughs> no, Corey was really wicked. How ace was the fact that he got up at like some ridiculous hour in the morning 
guy. I'd assumed he was European, then it turned out he was American, and I was making yeah. and I was making him get up at like four o'clock in the morning or something absolutely ridiculous. But he was super super cool. So yeah, that that was definitely a, yes. a really really nice interview, and Sven was there as well. So what do you mean by a small satellite? I actually found a little table by a a, a German fellow German Sven. Uh, no, Gu- he's not German, isn't he? Got, got uh, Gnetschny. No, born in Czechoslovakia. Oh, what? But he's at yeah. the University of Hanover. Yeah, that's true. How on earth did you know that he was uh, a Czech? Well, I looked it up. Wow, because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to pronounce his last name. And oh, wow. Connect, yeah, the first name sounds German. It's a good mm-hmm. job one of us did research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he apparently he's also a legend for uh, photogrammetry. Yeah, he defines it like this. This is was this was from one a paper that I saw about small sats, and so he's saying a large sat- satellite is anything over one thousand kilograms. So give me some examples, Sven. Yeah, maybe big one Hubble. You know, eleven tons. Eleven tons. And the biggest one I could find was uh, these American spy satellites, Keyhole. They're up to 20 tons, you know. Wow, 20 tons. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's yeah that that's a beast, isn't it? Um, yeah, me- they're probably the size of a bus or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is... I, th- I think the Keyhole satellites are similar size to Hubble, aren't they? They just have must have a whole heap of more equipment on. Because I believe that the shuttle payload bay was designed for the keyhole satellite yeah yeah but they probably when they're out in space they unfold their radar antenna or whatever yeah so the mirrors yeah wow 20 tons that is that is ridiculous uh medium satellites 500 to a thousand kilograms so most of them nowadays i think they're going down in mass yeah then mini satellites 100 kilograms to 500 kilograms and then micro satellites 10 kilo, 10 kilograms to 100 kilograms so that's where getting very popular now yeah so that's where some cube sats lie isn't it in that yeah like planet labs you know they have some optical yes. telescopes yes and probably more than 10 kilos right yeah i think what their sky sat is probably in that in that and that's the bigger one right? that's the bigger yeah. one yeah yeah uh, and then microsatellites. So that microsatellites is kind of the main a, CubeSat. No, nanosatellite is the is the main CubeSat. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's sorry. Yeah. Up to ten I, kilos. Yeah. Yeah. Up to ten kilograms. <laughs> so nanosatellite is is kind of where we're in the CubeSat territory, isn't it? So you'd expect like a one cube to to maybe even get into the Pico satellite range, which is 0.1 kilograms to a one kilogram and then you've got the final category of femto satellites not to be con- not to be confused with femtosat but femto satellites which are less than 100 grams well that's for now isn't that uh project breakthrough they're planning to do one gram or 10 grams right but i think we can call the breakthrough starship ones femto satellites they they must yes. be in in that kind of range because they well, we'll get on to the Sprite in a bit, but um, yeah, I mean, so Sputnik 1957 not only was the first satellite, it was the first uh, micro satellite because it was 83 kilograms, so pretty heavy, yeah. uh, and it and it actually had two of the common features. It was it had a comms device, so it was able to put out a signal, and it had a power supply. Yeah, it lasted a few days, right? No set, no. Um, solar panels. No solar panels. Are just completely yeah. off. Pretty rubbish batteries. Broadcasting, not receiving. I think. Yeah, just but, 
a Morse code signal, right? But within within those few days that it was up, it inspired GPS. So people realized that you could using the Doppler shift of the of the of the radio signal coming oh. off Sputnik, you could you could um ascertain position and things like that. So it was just that having something up there doing it inspired lots of well i mean let's face it sputnik is <laughs> historically fr- so important it's just ridiculous yeah it also freaked out the, the americans <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i don't think the russians realized how much it was going to freak everyone out yeah one of the most important things in history perhaps I, I, even when it comes down to things like table design i've got a table that clearly is based on sputnik <laughs> Really? <laughs> it's, got, it's got those... Is that a table? Yeah, it was just that sort of late 50s sort of... Okay. I don't know. There's sort of something about Sputnik seemed to inspire yeah, also, lots of things. Just the question, uh, where at what height does a state state end, state territory, you know? Because it's flying overhead all of the foreign countries. Yeah. And the spy plane isn't allowed to do that. But a satellite, it's just so high that it's no longer part of the space of what belongs to a state. Yeah. So they established a precedent there. And then the other countries probably thought, if the Russians can launch a satellite that flies over our country, we can launch one that flies over Russia. The Outer Space Treaty, I suppose, is all inspired by all of those things. But let's not let's get on. Let's not get off, to- off topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, okay. so, so, so here's a question, Sven. Why have miniaturization at all? What, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the big deal? The number one reason must be cost savings. Cheaper to build, cheaper to launch. Also, just because you can, you know, all the technology that was required to stick into a satellite was so big and so heavy, you couldn't do it in a CubeSat form factor. And nowadays you can. I mean, you can buy a Raspberry Pi and put it in a CubeSat, right? Yeah, didn't have that 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have to say, I, I've been watching a YouTube um, uh, channel called RGSat. And he's trying to build a CubeSat for less than a thousand dollars. So yeah. that you know, when when you think that there's satellites up there that cost billions, like literally billions of dollars, and you think, yeah, I mean, I suppose if you take something like, um, even if you took the James Webb Telescope, and you thought, well, is there a chance that you could build something? that could do a similar job but didn't cost 15 billion dollars yeah. and it's like yeah so clearly miniaturization i i like there's some really good there's some really good things as well like obviously that you can mass produce smaller objects quicker you know they're not as yeah. complicated <clears throat> um they're easy to build into a constellation so the great thing about constellations is that you can cover larger areas very very quickly so if you've got one big Earth observation satellite, obviously it has to travel round at orbital speed and so can only take pictures of certain areas at certain times. Whereas if you have yeah. a constellation, like the, the Dove satellites, the Dove CubeSats. From Planet Labs, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, there's a, it, once they've got over 100 in orbit, which I think they have now, yeah, they, they, can, they, can, they can do the whole world surface image it Once every day, day. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that, which is which At is 3.7 meters resolution yeah or something? it's incredible yeah. I, I mean that, that's amazing isn't it? so you can get mul- plus you can get multiple data points so if you've got a constellation mm-hmm. of small satellites you can do multiple data points you can have inspector satellites uh yeah it, and i mean with with the uh, reliability requirements you used to have this billion dollar satellite and you had to make it super redundant so it wouldn't ever fail 
nowadays you just build 80 satellites maybe instead of one and then one of them fails it's no big deal yeah the distributed system thing is really important isn't it so you can commission your constellation in stages you can fail gracefully so it doesn't matter if some of them fail it doesn't bring down the entire constellation you can survive hostile attacks or or like or just damage in general so that's that that sort of plays into this 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 idea of fractionated which i love this word fractionated spacecraft so these satellites where the functional capability of a big monolithic spacecraft is distributed across smaller cubesats and they mm-hmm. just interact with each other wirelessly and then you've you've essentially got this enormous satellite that's actually almost blown up fractionated in space and uh, makes it a lot more resilient so the the military love these kind of things as well um yeah. uh, less to burn up in the atmosphere on re-entry that's a that's a great one you know, yeah, on the so, other hand, having hundreds of them has yeah. a better potential for space debris, right? And they're not as reliable. So they're pretty much, um, in my point of view, they're pretty much ideal for for low Earth orbit because if they fail, they have to. You want them to burn up in, in a few years. If you put, would put them in a higher orbit, like a thousand kilometers, they would stay stay around for decades for, for a very long time. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so very low Earth orbit where they can get a bit of atmospheric drag and be brought back down is ideal. A little bit higher is a little bit stressful because obviously they don't have millions of pounds worth of propulsion systems with redundancy and all those kind of things to get them out of the way. And but, yes, the di- but, but once you're out of orbit, yeah, exactly. But once you're out of orbit, so we'll get onto some of the really, really cool CubeSats that, that went out recently, but there's a list here of things that you ideally want on your on your small CubeSat. Yeah. Comms, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no point having something that you can't talk to up in space, right? So we'll talk about that and the SatNox. I mean, that, yeah. so this is where yeah. SatNox comes in. So to be able to talk to your satellite, that that's one of the most expensive bits. Obviously, you want sensors, so you want your <laughs> you want your your CubeSat to actually do something. Actually, you can also have one without sensor, like a radio communication satellite for amateur radio, for example. No? You're right. You don't necessarily need sensors. You could, you could have an experiment on board that's that's just an experiment. Um, could be a biological experiment, for example, on board. That's yeah, the, but then you need sensors yeah, to need figure sensors, out yeah. how it went. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could say um, Sputnik, you know, didn't have sensors, but you could still do experiments with it. Yeah, so it's the experiment is almost using its comms as the experiment, right? Wasn't there this dummy payload that was just reflecting light <laughs> for one of the... Oh, that was um, oh, what's his face from uh, oh, Electron? Yeah, the Electron yeah. launched some ridiculous. But that was actually quite artwork. Big, I think. Yeah, it was yeah, like an artwork, artwork yeah. thing. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't Let's happy about that. It. No, no, <laughs> I, it's quite funny that 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 really divided my my brain a little bit because I liked I liked the idea, but I thought, hang on a second, we really shouldn't stick up things that you know, no one asked for it. No one asked for an artwork that that that. That interfered yeah, with the I'm, night sky. I'm okay with it as long as it disappears after yeah. a year or so. No, yeah, know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so angry that I'm going to punch Peter Beck in the, in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought maybe. Yeah, I mean, I read when when Elon Musk, uh, you know, launched his his car into space, people were saying, you know, he's polluting space. But 
Oh no, that's just I mean that ridiculously that, large. Yeah, that that I, that I think is ridiculous because that's like sticking what uh, uh, that's like throwing a penny in the Atlantic Ocean. It's like it's more like a grain of yeah, not whatever. even a penny. Yeah, I mean, it's no, just, it, it, and just, and yeah. and it is you know the the inspirational aspect of it. I think is is still pretty cool, and the fact that obviously the the car was pretty close to pretty close to Mars recently. Yeah. So, and it's yeah. pretty fast. <laughs> it's going pretty <laughs> fast for a car. Yeah, it's got to be the fastest. <laughs> must be the fastest car ever, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so, very, very power efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so sensors, experiments, attitude yeah. control. So yes, attitude, attitude. attitude. Yeah. My my satellite's got a bad attitude. So attitude <laughs> is 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 literally the orientation of the satellite. So so if you need to point it, you need to be able to get control of its attitude so we'll get yeah, on to there's that different ways to do it yeah lots of really cool ways of doing it positioning so you might want to raise and lower the orbit or you might want to do a bit of station keeping as well that's a really cool area of i uh, think you can also do a little bit of positioning just by orienting the solar sail uh, i mean the solar panels if you have one you, you can increase your drag yeah, I um, saw that. I saw that doves do that, don't they? The the Planet yeah. Labs doves they get further apart and by yeah Spread using out, yeah. yeah using their solar panels as a yeah drag in the atmosphere, which I thought was really cool. Didn't the Chinese also launch uh, one recently where they did some experiments with a parachute thing to for deorbiting? Oh right. And after a certain point, they launch shoot that has a large area to make it deorbit faster. I saw that there was a satellite that had sort of like a wing. To be able mm -hmm. to kind that it could orientate to kind of move around, okay. which I thought cool. was pretty cool. Um, power control, so you, you need power obviously to to power all your sensors and comms and all those kind of things. So that's not to batteries. So yeah, exactly. So that's battery normally batteries and solar. I don't think that anyone is doing <laughs> any RT, you know, nuclear stuff or anything like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. so then you've got uh, structure. So the structure actually we'll talk about because that's actually pretty important and actually probably the revolutionary part of all this. Computing power. So that's obviously things like the fact that, yeah, you can use the computing power, like you said, from something like your mobile phone or something like that. that they, yeah. It's that kind quite of few, chip that we're talking quite about. Quite a few universities are using mobile phones. Yeah. yeah. And then thermal management. So obviously the space is, Super, is brutal. That's probably the hardest. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to go because for it. Because it's so small. Heats up so fast on the other one. It cools so fast. So Yeah. So in shadow, you're going to be yeah minus a few hundred degrees. And then in, in full sunlight, you're going to be up a few hundred degrees. So it's it's you've got to have an enormous temperature range that you can work in. And then, of course, there's launch protocols. So all the different things that you've got to have. So, for, for example... Your CubeSat has to be able to to have a mechanism for attaching, for actually connecting the battery on launch because you can't have your CubeSat operational before the moment of launch. So there's there's those things as well. So here's mm -hmm. some here's some NanoSat facts. So so far, there's been 1,417 NanoSats launched, 1,302 CubeSats. Two interplanetary CubeSats, which I think is super cool. Very cool. And 93 nanosats have been destroyed on launch, so have been involved in things like CRS-7, I think it was, that the SpaceX one that blew up and the Cygnus one that blew up and things like that. So, Rest in pieces. Yes. Well, some of them were recovered as well. Like I th I, I, loads of the doves in that Cygnus explosion 
were sort of found on the beach and are on display in places as mm-hmm. as and, and like look in pretty good condition obviously they they can't fly now <laughs> but but yeah so they they sort of found them all scattered all over the place so um they're quite robust um uh most nanosats on a rocket 103 so i guess that must be the insane uh, the, the, the indian launch the yeah. indian launch yeah the pslv yeah. launched those uh 68 countries have launched nanosats it's not bad is it and so yes it would be interesting to know how many countries have launched larger satellites yeah well it's it's not many is it it's not many no. not many not i mean that. obviously you have these, these tv satellites telecom must be quite a few but yeah. uh, this is obviously much easier and cheaper yeah i mean it's it's the <clears> um <throat> a lot of countries it's their first satellite isn't it that has been launched is a nanosat of some description normally a cubesat so there's there's a whole bunch of them uh, of countries that that is their that is their entrance into space so yeah i didn't realize the first seven cubesats were launched in 2003 on a russian rocket um that uh, they're the first official cubesats so that is back to bob twiggs whose quote was earlier was used earlier and uh, from stanford university stanford yeah, yeah it's it's they they had a couple of CubeSats on that launch. One of them so worked, he was one of, them one of the co-inventors, basically, of yes. the whole concept. So, yeah, so who was the other one? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, <laughs> Professor Jordi Puig-Suari, which is a pretty cool name. Professor Jordi yeah. Puig-Suari of California Polytechnic. So the Cal Poly. Um, Poly. Yeah, they defined the CubeSat back in 1999. And and had a launch in two thousand and three, only four years later. So that's that's pretty cool. And the whole idea was, yeah, to get universities involved and sort of come up with a with, with a system that that works for for education and things like that. Hence that quote at the beginning that it that, that it was how do we get our own satellites in space? How do we how do we make that even feasible? So I think the best place to start is is structure out of that list and the structure. Of the CubeSat, yeah. is That's where it gets its name. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, is 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 really the kind of breakthrough moment for me. It's a bit like the C container. The C container yeah. was was standardised across the entire world, which means that your ports and your ships and everything can can all have this similar object, and it completely revolutionised. Um, distribution and shipping all around the world made everything loads cheaper just because of the form factor so you see something like a ship shipping container you think how boring but really it's it's kind of boringness that yeah that, it makes it super cheap but well it's revolutionized can, the world i mean the world would be a yeah. completely different place without the sea container and i and i think the cubesat is a similar sort of thing isn't it it's a 10 by 10 by 10 cube 10 centimeters that is yeah and you can stack them, so you can put them side by side, or you can stack them uh, lengthways. It's, it's, it seems to be stacking them lengthways seems to be the most common. Yeah, form. so 10 by 10 by 10 is one unit, and you can have two units, three units, six units is yep. also quite yep. popular. So I think six units usually looks two like by big, three. Looks like yeah. A, yeah, looks more like a briefcase. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a three-unit would be like a loaf of bread size yep. thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, they need to. I guess need to have symmetrical shapes. 
<laughs> so you couldn't have a, a a two and a one look like an L shaped thing would not work. Yeah. So you could do a Tetris cube set. <laughs> <laughs> Tetris cube. Yeah. So you, yeah. So yeah. The, you can't have cubesats in Tetris shapes other than and you the... do formation flying and fit them into each other. Oh uh, yes, that, that 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 brings a whole new uh, element of fractionized. There will be something for the interplanetary podcast cube set, of course. Oh yes, we could. We the that's first it. The first Tetris te- cube The set. first game of Tetris in space using cubesats. Oh, Excellent. what that is! That is good, isn't it? And you could only you can only fly the things if you're really good at Tetris. Three <laughs> <laughs> D Tetris. Three D Tetris. There are there are other there are other formats for this stuff, and that's pocket cubes, which are five centimeters rather than ten centimeter cubes. So that brings the form factor even further down. And then there's yeah. things like tube sets. Which instead of being, I hadn't heard of those, yeah. yeah, the tube sets. They there have been some. 2016, there was one called the TubePod 3U CubeSat that launched TubeSats from within the CubeSat. What? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, which isn't which which actually I found is isn't that you know that that what what's quite cool is that there are sort of payloads that launch CubeSats, but we'll get onto the that we'll get onto the payload delivery. But I th- this is one of my favourite things out of all of this, but. There's sun cubes as well, which are three centimeter cubes, mm-hmm. which which means that you can have twenty seven uh, sun cubes in a in a one U cube set. Have those been launched already? No, I don't think they have. I don't think that I, I don't think that has been launched. So none have been launched yet. I think they got the size just right for the first generation, definitely because you know you have enough space to do something. I mean, you have to do all, do all the things you mentioned earlier. But uh, if they had started out with three by three by three, would have been just space junk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> ten by ten by ten, you can do reaction wheels and sensors and well, that's it. I mean, I and, and I think you know all these companies are working in that. In you know, you can buy off the shelf components, the cots thing, and and of course, once you set this C container style size. Then everyone's working to that. So I think the ten by ten by ten is clearly the format of choice, and it means that the that the deployers are there, and the and everything, all the sort of components are being built at that size. So the structure thing is like hyper important. There's only one type of sort of mini satellite, the femtosat, the Kicksat Sprite, which is a kind of cracker size, three point five centimeter chip essentially with some whiskers that it's it are its antenna and they were actually kicksat 2 was launched by nasa on the ss john young cygnus spacecraft back in 2018 and that actually was a three unit cubesat and it had two one u units of it contained all these little sprites how many were there oh over a hundred wow so yeah, there was over a hundred little tiny sprites launched from the Cygnus ISS resupply spacecraft. And actually, there's a really good picture of three U CubeSat gold tinted box that's near the um, Canadarm as the uh, Cygnus NG10 is docking with the ISS. So those were launched from the uh, Japanese module, I guess, from the. CubeSat launcher they have on the Japanese model? No, I think they were launched from Cygnus itself. 
Oh, okay. Well, actually, we could, we could quickly talk about deployment because deployment's quite fun. There's lots of different type of deployment systems. I, I like the name of P-Pods. <laughs> That's a good one. The Poly Pico Satellite Orbital Deployer. That can do all sorts of 1U, 1.5U, 2U, and 3U CubeSats, up to 3U. There's NanoRacks, of course, do CubeSat Deployer, the NRCSD, which is on the International Space Station. So I think that that's the one that is used for things like the Doves, and it it's brilliant. I love the the, the film footage of that deploying CubeSats. I think is really, really cool. Yeah, some Doves have also been launched from Falcon 9, from SpaceX. I think the coolest deployment by far is a, a CubeSat called Chaksky, a 1U CubeSat. Chaksky is the messenger of the Inca Empire, and uh, uh, it's a Peruvian, Peruvian CubeSat that was launched by hand by the Russian cosmonaut Oleg Artmyev in uh, 2014 he literally went on a spacewalk <laughs> carrying <laughs> carrying the cubesat and just threw it into space it's the vip treatment that, i mean it is that that is pretty cool isn't it? <laughs> so yeah that's that was actually so that is one way of deploying a cubesat so yeah it can be deployed by the launch vehicle it can be deployed by the iss through things like nano racks and, and like you said that the japanese have got one as well and there's icy pod and the light sail was also deployed in a cool way it launched on the Falcon heavy yeah but it was inside a, a university research satellite 200 kilos or so and mm. got ejected from the inside of the other satellite the university satellite they wanted to do some me local measuring in space of distances and they needed some objects to measure the distance from and then the planetary society said oh we have we have this little satellite that you could take along <laughs> which was the lightsaber too. It's so cool, isn't it? I mean, that deployment from a another payload, another satellite, yeah. is, is is super cool. I mean, that's that's so sci-fi. Matryoshka. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah it, well, it's so sci-fi, isn't it, having a, a, a sort of big satellite that can deploy little mini CubeSats. Yeah, what we need is like a docking bay where it goes back into the bigger satellite. Well, yeah, well, there's, there's some... But there's, they usually unfold after they... Got yeah, but there's some obviously I don't know what the Russian that Russian one that that there's a satellite up at the moment which everyone's very worried about which which deploys a little mini satellite and then the mini satellite goes and looks at American satellites and then flies yeah, yeah. flies back to the mothership <clears throat> and can dock. Yeah, but that's back. probably bigger than the CubeSat, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I would yeah, I'd imagine so. But maybe the actual inspector satellite isn't. Maybe maybe they have like a miniaturized <laughs> CubeSat, but I don't know whether the Russian military are sticking to the CubeSat format at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're really freaking out. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, it's pretty big attitude. So yeah, how that's a really that, cool topic, actually. The attitude and propulsion, I think, is a podcast in itself. Okay. So we should, sure. we should, we should do that as a second, <laughs> a second, yeah. a second podcast. There's so many cool sensors now that we should dedicate some proper time to some of the stuff on 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 that front. The sort of things that you can do. But before we before we play the interview, let's talk about comms and antennas. I think the only thing they haven't managed so far is doing laser communications with the ground. Hopefully coming. Yeah, I think I think I think the Germans have done it. In a CubeSat? Yeah. I think oh. that there's a company called TSAT in Germany. Uh-huh. Um, and they have built a yeah, a laser comms 
that that's actually strong enough to go from low earth orbit to ground range so it can actually communicate Excellent. and it, obviously it's got you know a pointing mechanism for this for this laser so i don't can know it also kill people on the ground <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure it's that powerful i mean that i suppose that's the good thing about a cubesat <laughs> it's unlikely to get that kind of power but you just need a few thousand pointing at the same spot <laughs> yeah no well yeah. yeah i mean that that would be i mean that yeah unstoppable yeah, that would be unstoppable, wouldn't it? A um, yeah, a a, a massive, a, a massive, a massive array of death ray cubesats. But yeah, look at the TSAT in Germany. It has. I don't think it's flown yet, but they've certainly you know developed the part. It's really interesting. But yeah, normally yeah, I think that's the, super cool because you don't have to share the bandwidth with anyone, and you get lots of data in a short time. That's probably the future. Yeah, I noticed that sort of like the the currently the sort of one of the most usual techniques is to use measuring tape as your antenna, which I couldn't really? quite which I couldn't quite believe. But yeah, and I was thinking, are they just measuring the satellite? And it's like, no, it's it's just measuring tape is just perfect for yeah. They're also antenna. using it for the uh, light sail to unfold the light sail. Yeah, you know. It's just a motorized measuring tape. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's and it. No, you some can of them are... see a video of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a three U cubesat, and it contains a light cell which is thirty square meters. It's very thin and just very delicately folded up, and then it takes a few minutes to unfold. And it's just measuring tape. Yeah, and it, and 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 obviously, if you can deploy your monopole dipole antenna. As a measuring tape, I guess that makes it super cheap. And, yeah, and obviously, cheap is good. obviously, the material is the material and shape. I guess is perfect for the deployment because that, yeah, that shape, once it's deployed, there is no mechanical stress really, yeah. so it yeah, can so, be flimsy. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And there's high gain antennas for cubesats, which obviously need to be a lot more complicated. So you can see videos of some of these dishes sort of spring-loaded dishes springing out of 1U and 2U CubeSats, which are absolutely incredible. Of course, they're hyper-complicated, so that's kind of your NASA-style JPL CubeSat that have got these beautiful springing-out high-gain antennas. The um, Marco satellites that yeah. flew to Mars, they also talk to Earth directly, right? Yeah. Must have had some kind of antenna. Yeah, well, they were super important for the the Mars InSight landing. They were there because the they could get the information quicker back to um, ground mission control because yeah. they were able to um, pick up and transmit from the uh, from the lander quicker than the um, the big satellite that was orbiting. Yeah. But so, it's mind-boggling to have such a small satellite yeah. be able to send a signal directly to Earth. And not only that, not only did it have this antenna on there as well, it was it also had cameras and things like that. So the yeah. pic pictures of Earth as it was going away are actually really good, and the pictures of Mars are really good. In fact, they actually used some of the data from Marco to actually um, to actually analyze the atmosphere. That's, yeah, okay. I know. So, so it's like, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, I mean. But we're talking about Marco A and Marco B, or or Eva and Warley, as they were sort of known as well. Um, they are the first interplanetary cubesats, which I think is perhaps the most exciting element of this. And there should be some more 
sort of deep space CubeSats going on the Artemis 1 mission. So when Artemis 1 launches, if and when, there'll be a bunch of CubeSats that end up around the moon doing useful moon stuff, which I think, I mean, that really is super exciting. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. A lot. Yeah, I mean, there will be cheap rockets going to the moon, and then you have cheap satellites. Cheap satellites, yeah. Really cool. Really, really cool. And uh, so, yeah, on the whole, it seems to be X-band, KA-band, VHF, UHF, S-band kind of comms that these things are are using. But there was uh, the the guy that was building this under $1,000 CubeSat was using a modem so he could talk directly to Global Star, Iridium, Inmarsat. So as long as your as long as your CubeSat is under the orbit of those, <laughs> okay, you can yeah. you can talk to them and get your message up to them and then da- and then down to and that's relay it down. Almost cheating. <laughs> it is almost cheating, isn't it? But I, but apparently that's a cheaper way of doing it. So I thought yeah. that was really really interesting as well. But if you're not as smart and you need a ground station, <laughs> exactly. then maybe. We have someone who can tell you something about it. So if you've got all these CubeSats and they're all, they're all flying around, and obviously you need line of sight to, to pick up these these very, very weak transmissions and to be able to talk to them. So this is our next. This is where our next guest comes in. Let's hear it. Akute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, what are CubeSats? And then, yeah, you can you can sort of tell us how Satnogs, which is, I guess, what we're going to really be talking about, uh, fits in with that and how it all came about. Yeah, so uh, it's it's been, uh, I'd say, well over a decade now. They there were um, there was a design that was formed around a a repeatable form factor for small satellites. And and it was uh, aptly named the the CubeSat because uh, originally this this form factor was a a ten centimeter cube, and that uh, that ten centimeter cube uh, could be expanded into a uh, a twenty centimeter by ten centimeter by ten centimeter or or thirty by by ten by ten, um, and then you could stack these CubeSats within a you know rectangular tube of sorts. Uh, for multiple deployment, so you could have, you know, three CubeSats deployed from from a, a rectangular cube at the same time, for instance. Um, and this this repeatable form factor and this repeatable uh, launch and delivery mechanism really drove the cost of uh, of getting to space down considerably. And you know, combined with the the miniaturization of, of components and Making components themselves cheaper and easier uh, to source and test on the market, um, it, it it led to a, just an explosion of of new satellites going up uh, on a on a very frequent basis. Um, so a lot of these satellites, uh, especially in in, uh, in research um, where you have universities involved or researchers involved, um, there may be an experiment that that goes up and and this uh, this satellite will will often be using um, amateur radio frequencies, and those amateur radio frequencies, you know, have a lot of restrictions around them, around you know non-commercial use and and alignment with uh, uh, with amateur radio principles and and furthering science and technology. 
and and as as such, there's there's often a a, a process of of getting your satellite to space, and then you're going to see that satellite, you're going to see that CubeSat maybe a couple times a day as it passes by overhead, and when it's not passing by overhead, who's listening to the, all of that data? Who's who's collecting the data that's being downlinked as that satellite orbits? Um, and that's been a, a problem to uh, to solve for for ground station operators uh, for for quite some time. Um, and that's where where Satnox comes in. We uh, uh, the original goal of the project was to uh, to improve the amount of data that's collected from all of these CubeSats and from these satellites that are operating in the amateur radio spectrum. Um, and we do that through automation of the process itself and uh, bringing the, the ability to, uh, to collect that data in terms of, of cost further down, uh, making it uh, more feasible and more repeatable for, for ground station operators. You mentioned different amateur frequencies. I'm not a radio amateur, so what frequencies are there and what, what's the difference between them? Yeah, so uh, typically they're the two, what we call uh, frequency bands that are, are most popular with, uh, with uh, satellites today. There, there are other frequencies that, uh, that are used, but you have VHF and, and UHF. Uh, VHF is pretty close to uh, what someone might listen to on like an FM radio uh, in their, their vehicle. Um, 144 megahertz is is the, the common point there. Uh, UHF is up higher, 435 megahertz uh, around there. Um, and the uh, the higher up you go, the more more prominent uh, are the community uh, the communications mechanisms in in spacecraft. Um, but for for the amateur radio frequencies. Uh, UHF is is definitely the uh, the top for for these satellites with uh, uh, VHF lagging behind. Is that is that all down to things like licensing? So you've got obviously you've got this kind of limited resource, haven't you? Where you're where you've got to keep people within very narrow bands because there's only so much radio frequency available. Is that right? It is. It is, and that's um, that's actually a challenge and a little bit of a problem that the the Libre Space Foundation, which uh, Satnox is a part of, is, is trying to uh, trying to improve and trying to contribute to. Uh, there are um, there are governing bodies, uh, the the International Telecommunication Union, which has an amateur radio um, arm, the uh, the International Amateur Radio Union, and there's uh, there's a there's a desire to coordinate these frequencies and coordinate the frequency usage. Because it is a finite resource, um, you know, as as we go from single satellites to now talking about constellations of thousands of satellites, like this, uh, this is a problem that that has to be solved today before um, before it becomes a problem we can't react to. Uh, so, yeah, there there is there are governing bodies of, to coordinate those frequencies and try to approve and, and reject the usage of those frequencies based on uh, principles and values. Um, we're also finding that, unfortunately, sometimes satellites will still make it up to space uh, without proper coordination, and, and that's that's a huge problem. 
I was wondering, since um, not everyone is allowed to use these frequencies, do you have to have an amateur radio guy on your team if you launch a CubeSat, who's basically responsible for what it's doing? Or how does it work? Yeah, that's that's definitely part of the idea. There's There needs to be an amateur radio uh, station and call sign uh, associated with with a satellite that, uh, that goes up. Um, and the funny thing is, even, even among the amateur radio community, uh, I don't... I don't think a lot of people realize just how many are in orbit today and they're using these frequencies um, because when amateur radio operators talk about satellites, uh, they think of satellites that are going to relay their uh, their frequency and relay their, their transmission, um, kind of like a, a repeater in the sky. And there are hundreds more I, I, today a few hundred satellites that are operational and just beaconing data and they're not they're not relaying data they're not uh, repeating a signal they're just beaconing the the data they're beaconing the telemetry and the scientific payloads that are uh, that are involved with these satellites um, and that's that's where satnog steps in to uh, to automate that collection and uh, processing what is Satnogs, and uh, yeah, how, how did it come about, and, and what's the kind of infrastructure behind it? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a funny little acronym, I guess, of sorts. It's uh, stands for the Satellite Network Open Ground Station, uh, and this kicked off back in uh, around 2014 with a um, a NASA uh, oh hackaday type uh, event where uh, the uh, a group from Athens, Greece, involved with the the hackerspace in in Greece, got together and decided to to work on a project of of automating this this collection. And uh, there, the, the whole project does so through the use of Raspberry Pi computers, a little small form factor PC, and a USB uh, software defined radio. Uh, most common is what is called the RTL SDR, and this is this is it started off as like a TV uh, decoding stick uh, that was really cheap. And six eight years ago, somebody was able to exploit that as just a general purpose uh, software radio receiver, and that whole uh, space has has really exploded with all kinds of different uses. And the USB device itself is about twenty US dollars. So together, you know, Raspberry Pi and this little software receiver with whatever antenna system you can attach to it, um, that was the basis for, uh, for the, the SatNob setup. So from there, it's a matter of software and writing the code to be able to do the, uh, the orbital tracking and to do the, uh, the Doppler correction of the frequency as the object passes by in orbit. Um, and then process those uh, those frames and upload them back to uh, to our websites. Yeah. So, what what is the Doppler correction? Why do why would you have to do that? What's the uh, what's the lowdown on that one? Uh, the best uh, for those who are new to Doppler frequency and the Doppler shift. The best analogy here is a, a car driving by or, or a, a race car. The sound of a race car is going to be. You know, very very high in pitch until it passes by your head, and you know you've got that narrow effect. Um, the same thing is going to happen in in radio frequencies. As a, a satellite is overhead, you know it may 
it may take 12 to 15 minutes to go from horizon to horizon. Um, but as fast as it's going overhead, that, that radio frequency is going to, to shift. So on the FM dial, or for comparison, if, if you were listening to you know, your FM frequency from a low orbit uh, satellite, you, you may start off at you know, 99 megahertz and then end up at 98.5 um, at the end of, of the pass. So to be able to decode data from, from a moving object like that, you have to constantly shift to be on frequency. And, and that's all done with encode and recalculated every second on the Raspberry Pi. Is the real problem with that, if they're continually changing, that they clash with other frequencies? Because you, you've got this very narrow band that you're working in already. And therefore, does that, <laughs> does that band have to be bigger than it you're actually using because you've got this shift in frequency either side of it because of the Doppler effect? Yeah, as, as much as I let off with the, the, the finite resources of, of radio frequencies, there, there are uh, some of these data streams are, are very small in bandwidth. Um, even if you go down to the, uh, the old, uh, uh, the original concept of Morse code, uh, there are a lot of satellites that are still using Morse code, and that is the very smallest of, of bandwidth usage. Um, so you can cram a lot of, of data streams within uh, a, a single slice of that spectrum. Uh, but at the same time, you're right, there, there are collisions, and these often happen uh, at launch with, uh, within the first few days of a launch. If the launch is going to have um, multiple CubeSats, as is often the case, you know, we've, we've seen some launches upwards of you know, 50 to 100 satellites in a single launch. Um, those, those satellites are, are going to drift apart from each other over time. And while they're close together, that identification can be tough of you know, which satellite is exactly which if they're close to the same frequency. But they do tend to spread apart. And you can actually, uh, one of the artifacts that, that Satnogs will, um, will produce is, is what's called a waterfall image. And this image is, is just a, a time spectrum-based image of, of radio frequencies. And, and you could actually see the, uh, the signal over the course of that you know, 10 minute observation. Um, so you can see in, in neighboring signals over that, that same course. Uh, and then within that, you can kind of start to see the, the difference between the Doppler shifts of the different objects as they're, they're starting to spread apart over the course of many days. So the ground station is always aware of which particular satellite it's paying attention to? And estimating the Doppler shift for that particular satellite? For that particular one, yes. So, yeah. so when, you see, when you see neighboring satellites in the, the radio spectrum that are close by at the same physical space and the same frequency that's, that's being downlinked, you can, uh, you can start to see them. And, and there, are, there are people in the community who are developing uh, applications to better identify objects and better uh, develop orbital parameters for objects that have just been launched based on the radio frequency observations. So if you start to see two objects drift in a specific way from a radio frequency perspective, knowing that they're both beaconing on a specific frequency, you can calculate their difference and you can start to calculate their, their orbit. And, and in that case, it's, it becomes a game for, 
uh, for a lot of space enthusiasts to, to be able to, to, to track these objects and to be the first to, um, to even be NORAD in some cases in terms of uh, identifying the objects in their orbits. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's really cool. I mean, what, with, with the actual CubeSats themselves, what, what's been the kind of main applications and, and how have, have SATNOGs helped um, with that? Have, have, you managed to, have you been able to manage to expand what's actually possible with CubeSats? And, and what sort of things do CubeSats do? <laughs> yeah, you know, right now it's there are a lot of uh, it, it's such a foundational phase right now in in the development of of space technologies where um, the miniaturization of components has led to this this form factor, which is now leading to what's next, what what can be done next with with this form factor, or what's the next smaller form factor even still. Um, and so there, there are a lot of the experiments that go up that have to do with uh, with the flights themselves, be it the you know, command and control, uh, redundancy of systems, how how do um, uh, off the shelf uh, electronic components behave in a, a hostile environment with uh, with solar radiation up in space versus very expensive radiation hardened components um, and how can that be mitigated um, there are scientific experiments uh, that go up uh, usually a lot with university based cubesats there may be a like a physics experiment uh, measuring certain levels of radiation at, at certain altitudes uh, there are some experiments that are going up around the maneuverability of of cubesats i mean you, when you're talking 10 centimeters cube there's not much uh, room for propulsion systems, and yet at the same time, there are even amateur groups that are working on um, uh, like ion engines and thrusters for a very small uh, form factor that would fit in the palm of your hand. Um, so there, I, I, I think it's there. There's a, a good split of, of technology demonstration and technology experimentation with um, traditional research-based. Uh, uh, satellites uh, for universities that may uh, be looking to to discover a, a specific answer to a question uh, based on the payload that's uh, that's on these satellites, uh, and deorbiting is another, and space junk is a, another big aspect of of all of this, where some of the technology is being demonstrated and tested in terms of uh, how do how do you act as a good neighbor up in space and how are you going to deorbit a CubeSat when necessary uh, or before its its natural decay uh, has come. So it's there's a ton of stuff. Uh, you know, Bill Nye and the, the light sail project uh, is has has been a CubeSat. And that that concept of deploying a solar sail out of a small form factor um, is is amazing. And, crazy, and that was another fun one where Satnogs was right there listening to the data from uh, the light sail satellites. Oh, cool. So they also used Satnogs with the light sail too? There was a lot of uh, press around, around the light sail uh, satellites. I, and we weren't working directly with them on the, on the project. Uh, but that's one of those cases where the satellite goes up. You know, it's, it's using the frequencies. We're all interested. And... You know, we're working to collect that data um, 
whether whether or not the ground station operator or the, the satellite operator has worked directly with us. Although it's it's much nicer when they do because we can sometimes tailor the, the software or, or make some tweaks uh, specific for that satellite. So are the satellites actually aware of um, whom they're talking to? Is it a one-way communication? And, um, In most cases, it is a one-way. Do, do they broadcast continuously or are they aware where the ground stations are located and only transmit at the right time? Uh, a, a little bit of both, actually. In most cases, they're, they're beaconing all of the time. Um, and there are other ways of solving the, the problem of missing data as the satellite is not being listened to. Uh, so, for instance, uh, whenever the beacons occur, it could be beaconing uh, data for the past numerous hours uh, and just repeating that process over and over. Um, or there, there are some satellites that are configured to only beacon over certain locations. Um, so yeah, we see, see a little bit of, of all behaviors, uh, but for the, the most part, the majority are just beaconing on a frequent basis, you know, be it every couple of minutes um, or every you know, few seconds even. Yeah, so uh, I think we need to take just a little bit of a step back because I'm not quite sure we fully defined what satnogs is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I think it is, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, so satnogs, it's a it's a kind of network of ground stations that could be built by universities or amateurs or just like a man and his dog could have built a ground station and become part of that network. And Satnogs is the is the is is the coordination of all those different amateur and and maybe semi pro uh, ground stations. Is that right? Is that roughly yes, right? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So the the human driver in in all of this uh, is goes back years ago where uh, amateur radio frequencies started to to be used more commonly for for satellites. Uh, and and especially by universities and the uh, the process would often go you know get your satellite together get your ground station together at your your university launch the satellite and when you only see it twice a day you tweet for help <laughs> and you tweet to the amateur radio community because they're used to uh to satellites and so you you would have a, a hundred you know, really enthusiastic amateurs around the world uh, working to to pick up data from these satellites. And traditionally, that process is very uh, uh, very labor intensive where you've got one application tracking the satellite with your antennas, you've got another application tracking the radio frequencies, you've got a third application decoding that, that data stream, and then you have to email it all to the, the operator. And that requires somebody sitting in a computer just for that that 10 minute pass over overhead. Um, so the Satinox project is, is really just software to automate that entire thing. Um, and it's all open source, open contributions. Uh, so, so now instead of sitting in a computer and having to run four different applications to collect and send uh, data from a satellite, it, it happens day and night automatically you know, 24 hours a day uh, running off of a, a Raspberry Pi. 
if I wanted to get involved, could I could I build a ground station, and what, and what, what would it take, and what would I need? Yeah. So the the <laughs> that's a that's a loaded question because <laughs> there the, the benefit of Satnogs is that the uh, it's been designed to be modular, so that whatever a ground station uh, can provide in terms of capabilities of receiving a signal, um, we will, uh, it, it'll work with, with the, uh, uh, the software that, that we've got on the, the flip side of that, to, to answer a simple question of, of what do I need? Um, it can, it can range from a very simple setup with a very simple antenna, uh, that's, that's sitting outside to pick up a, a strong satellite. Um, and that's the gateway drug. You've got you know, you're, you've got a Raspberry Pi. It's cheap. You've got a, an SDR stick that's cheap, and and a very basic antenna outside. And you may be able to pick up signals from uh, the space station, for instance, um, or or some of the uh, the weather satellites that, that are up there. Um, but you're not going to be very successful at, at picking up uh, weak signals from very small powered uh, cubesats. Um, but that's where you can build on that ground station and start to upgrade it over time. You know, replace the antenna with something a little bit more high gain or high power antenna, uh, or go to a, a rotator setup where you're going to have antennas that are automatically pointing in uh, the proper elevation and proper azimuth. Um, meanwhile, the, the Raspberry Pi and that little SDR stick stay the same. Uh, so we do have instructions on our, our wiki uh, website, uh, wiki.satnogs.org, on how to build a station. And, and that's where, where I really uh, suggest people start off with you know, a basic antenna and a setup that you know we can, we can pick up a few of these large satellites, um, you know, get, get hooked on that, that success feeling, and then just upgrade over time. So with with uh, normal astronomy, if you live in a big city, you always have the light pollution. Is is there something? Can I build my own ground station when I'm in a big city? That's a great that's a great question and a great connection to make. Um, and I've never thought of it that way. The because in in big cities, the light pollution is not a a concern, um, and traditionally the even even in the major cities, there's there's not too much of a problem with uh, uh, radio frequency interference within those those frequencies. Um, our bigger problem in, in big cities is the uh, the horizon and how much uh, obstacles aside a ground station like a, a large building um, may obstruct the horizon. And um, it's you know, VHF frequencies and UHF frequencies are are traditionally referred to as uh, line of sight frequencies. And so um, it's not so much the light pollution, but that, that direct line of sight overhead is, is still necessary for, for picking up those signals. Um, we've started to mitigate some of this in, in software. If, if somebody has uh, you know, a, a, a lot of obstructions overhead in their minimum uh, horizon is 20 degrees, then that's all we're going to schedule for, for that ground station are, are passes that, uh, that are going to be above 20 degrees. 
the next phase of that's going to be which you know which corner of their their visible horizon is is the uh, uh, the problem spot to, to block out. So Sadnox also coordinates all the ground stations, so not everyone does the same work. Yes, there is. Uh, so there are a couple of main components of Satnogs, and and this one I refer to you as uh, at network.satnogs.org. Um, and if you go there today, you can see that uh, we've got uh, a few hundred different uh, ground stations that are online and operational at at this very moment. Um, and from within this satellite, there uh, there are ground station operators, there are satellite operators, and overall enthusiasts. Um, and for satellites that uh, uh, that need some kind of priority or that uh, we want to focus on over a given period, they can be scheduled from this, uh, this website. Um, ground station operators can schedule their own observations. They can go in and Excuse me. Look for what they're interested in at a, a moment's notice. Um, or if things are sitting bored, we've uh, got an auto scheduler that will look at a, a prioritized list of satellites and kind of reconcile what needs to be picked up at a at a given time. So, so if I'm a CubeSat maker and I've I've made a CubeSat, how would I engage with SatNogs to help me get my data? Well, there are a couple of different ways uh, we. We try to work in the open as much as possible. I mean, this is an open source community. Um, you know, I'm I'm a volunteer contributor, uh, so the 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 first place I would point people to is our our forum uh, site, and that is uh, community.libre.space, um, and just uh, uh, announce the project there and announce you know what's what's going on. Um, we do have uh, some guides that we're starting to build for uh, for satellite builders themselves and satellite operators on our on our wiki site, uh, wiki.satnogs.org, um, and there are some pointers there in into uh, when to engage with us, how to engage with us. Uh, we've we've got um, we've had some great experiences with satellite operators who come to us when when they're in the design phase and they're building some of these systems and and for a lot of the the teams especially universities um you may a university may work on satellites over the course of multiple years and so those students are going to be working on this for the first time and then they're going to leave and if that university does it again it's like doing it again for the first time so uh there's there's a lot of opportunity to uh, provide pointers uh, we've got many people in the community who've done this before um, and especially around that that radio frequency communication, uh, being able to uh, design your comm system in a way where uh, you would be most successful getting the most amount of data uh, from that satellite. So uh, definitely, if anybody working on CubeSats listening in, like reach out. We're we're happy to help. Have you have you ever had anyone in a panic after they've launched? going please, please help us that's that's typically what happens <laughs> <laughs> so, have you, have you got any good exa have you got any good examples of, of that sort of what how that but, works no, out I, I, it's funny but the, but honestly that that goes back to the 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 uh the initial I, I don't know that the big bang of this entire problem was was that that method of oh we've got a satellite up in space and now now we're not hearing it all the time. Well, what can we do? Well, we can we can ask for help. Um, 
and so that uh, that that does does still happen today, even even in the CubeSat community, where um, Satnogs is not uh, not known to you know a satellite operator until after the launch, and then suddenly somebody points at all of the data that we're collecting for their satellite, um, and so there are definitely cases where uh, we've been in touch with uh, with an operator after launch. Oh, so um, so so you could you could already be collecting their data, and they don't even know that that data has been collected. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. That's cool. Yeah, are there also commercial uh, satellite operators that use Satnox? Uh, not for the not for the Satnox network that, that we have today, with uh, with all of the volunteer contributors and and. Uh, volunteer ground stations um i i hesitate with a couple of caveats there uh, there there are some uh we do allow weather satellites so there there are a lot of weather enthusiasts uh for collecting and and decrypting like NOAA satellites uh and satellite imagery so um that borderline commercial but um you know companies like planet labs uh, all of these other companies that are in the commercial space um for one they're they're working outside of the the amateur radio spectrum uh, into uh, more licensed frequencies and commercially licensed frequencies, um, and I, I, I don't want to say that uh, uh, that Satnox would never be in that commercial space, um, but that's definitely not the the goal and the driver uh, today. We, we're focusing on the the amateur radio spectrums. Is is there parts of the world where you wished you had more coverage on the ground? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh, you know, the <laughs> I, I I would say almost anywhere in the middle of an ocean, um, and that's uh, <laughs> that's a little <laughs> tough. But there there are if 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 you go to network.satnogs.org, I think the uh, the, yeah, the main page is is going to show a, a map, and you can see where uh, where all of our ground stations are today. Um, so you can you can pick out the uh, the blind spots pretty quickly and easily here, uh, and you can also see where we do have uh, island ground stations. You know, there's there's one in in Hawaii and a couple of other um, islands off the Atlantic. Uh, obviously, um, Asian countries are a little sparse, as well as uh, Africa. We've got a good station going in in South Africa right now. Um, and uh, we've we've heard rumors of one in progress uh, for Antarctica too. So uh, anywhere there's there's a gap in our coverage, it's we're we're gonna we're gonna use any ground station we can get. So so if if you live in the middle of the ocean on a boat, you should <laughs> you should exactly. help back and build yourself an antenna. <laughs> if you work on an all platform or something, yeah. yeah, yeah. So right. um, yeah. I have a real question. If I see if I look at the map and you know there's lots of um, ground stations in in Europe already, does it mean I can't really contribute, or can I? Does it make sense to put up a new ground station even if you if, if there's another one close by? Yes, uh, it, it always does. I we we have not hit the point of saturation for for ground stations, um, and I, I say that because uh, the the growth in in cubesats uh, today is is just astounding. You know, there there are more going up into orbit every month. Um, so at a given time, if you if you look overhead, there's there's a good chance that there 
are multiple satellites overhead uh, downlinking uh, data. And our observations and our software today are only going to focus on one at a time. Um, so there, it's probably feasible in software to, to be able to watch a wider spectrum and use you know, technology to decode multiple at the same time, but we're just not there yet. And until that point, um, uh, more ground stations are, are always going to be better. So, so who are the Satnogs team, and 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 other than just building ground stations, are, are there other kind of opportunities for people to get involved with the team themselves? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the the core team was uh, was founded, and and the uh, the overall foundation is called the the Libre Space Foundation. Uh, and this was founded in in Athens, Greece, after that uh, that initial project kickoff. Um, Back in 2014, that, that project was uh, submitted for the, the Hackaday Prize, which happened to be, I believe, the first Hackaday Prize uh, for their annual event, and, and the team won. So uh, with, uh, with that prize, they, they created the Libre Space Foundation, which is a non-for-profit organization focused on uh, open source technologies in space, as well as uh, furthering the, the mission of, of open access to, to space. Um, so with that uh, that core team in in Greece, uh, there are contributors uh, from all around the world. Um, not only just the ground station contributors, but uh, software contributors. Uh, we're always in need of of Python developers, GNU radio uh, developers, um, anyone with uh, fascination for space and and uh, software. You know, we can definitely uh, find some. Uh, find some tasks there, uh, as well as just overall satellite enthusiasts who want to help track some of these new launches and help identify some of uh, some of these signals. Um, there, there's some software and some some work to be done there as well. Uh, we have uh, constant need for just that that connectivity and that connection with with our users and our communities. So people who are um, we're good with uh, documentation. Your wiki is always in need of help, but that's a constant for any project. And uh, our community forums are, are a good place to to get involved as well. So, so how many how many kind of people do you actually have that that sort of help out with all those things? Is it tens or hundreds or? <laughs> yeah, on the 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 core development team, it's it's definitely in the in the tens. Um, and ground station wise, we we have uh, data contributions today from over a thousand contributors, um, and that's both the Satnogs network that you see on on the map itself, as well as uh, contributors who are using uh, other applications and third party applications, which we also support data from. We we want to be interoperable with uh, with all sorts of. of Data sources. Uh, so we we have uh, I, I would say close to a thousand contributors just from the the data perspective itself. Uh, there are a lot of people very active in the in the community forums uh, discussing new launches, uh, discussing um, even getting into you know international policy about the that core issue of of uh, resource consideration in in the frequencies um, and the the up and coming issue of space junk <laughs> yeah you know, what what happens when when the satellites are are done and left over 
So yeah. uh, definitely a lot of contributors. Uh, the core contributors, as far as software goes, um, are definitely a few dozen, and we're looking for more. Is there is there a core team that kind of drive policy and and the direction that you want to go? So that you know that like a like a handful of people that sit there and have meetings and say we should be driving it in this direction, like a, a sort of a leadership team, I suppose. Yeah, there is, there is that, that, and that goes back, back to that foundation that was formed uh, early on. That the Libre Space Foundation uh, is uh, is led by uh, a board of directors, and that board of directors meets uh, regularly and frequently um, to to help drive direction, and uh, as well as uh, some of the some of those big policy discussions. So there, the most recent example of this uh, was the. The development was uh, what they call the, the Libre Space Manifesto. And this is a, a list of core principles by which the organization uh, runs by and in, in support of open access to space and um, and good intentions in space. Is, is that sort of cobbled together with sort of open source in an open source kind of way so that the community themselves feed back into the to the leadership? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, this uh, that that very manifesto was posted for uh, for comment and feedback, and um, as as is often the intent for any major changes that that are made. Um, I think we've we've learned over the the course of the years that you know any any change that that may seem uh, they seem to make sense or, or may seem sensible to one person, maybe culturally different on the other side of the globe to somebody else. And, and that's uh, something that, that we've been working through and um, improving on, on over time. So uh, trying to make this as open as possible and um, at the same time, non-political. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is really tricky <laughs> to do, isn't it? I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I noticed that, um, the Libre Foundation recently joined IAC. What was the idea behind that? Yeah, you know, that's I, I was honestly I was just reading that myself last night. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a, honestly there. I, I as much as we're talking about Satnogs here as well, I'll I'll throw a, a pitch out for some of the other projects that that this overall foundation is involved in. Um, you know all aspects of space. It's not just that that communications uh, point, but uh, uh, CubeSats themselves. I mean, the, the design of a CubeSat uh, is often either commercialized or something that a group will go into for the first time, not realizing that it can be a repeatable process. So, uh, creating open source technologies for those satellites that people can pick up and use and build on over time. Um, that the Libre Space Foundation is very much in that physical space as well, trying to drive the cost down. Where, where's it all going? Where, where is, where are CubeSats going? What, what can you see the future of? And, and how does that relate to things like the, the cost of launch and, and all those elements? And, and are, are they going to go up on single small rockets, or are they going to be going up on, on these rideshare type? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> the recent. Um, Missions to Mars, where there was uh, a demonstration of CubeSats. Marco, right? Marco A, Marco B, exactly. Uh, a demonstration mission that followed the 
the the lander to Mars to to test a relay of information back to back to Earth. Uh, I believe that was the first time where this this form factor and this this design and the the idea of such a, a small satellite uh, was was in use outside of of low Earth orbit, um, and so that uh, and and that has has since been uh, repeated in in uh, missions to the moon, for instance, and and that's going to be uh, a much bigger thing as as the uh, the Lunar Observatory mission kicks off. Um, we're going to see that a lot more as well. Uh, so just the idea of miniaturization, cheaper uh, missions, and you mentioned rideshare opportunities. Uh, that's really where a lot of this, this comes about. Um, very few, uh, I can't think of any uh, CubeSat that's been launched singularly into orbit yet. Uh, it's usually on some kind of ride share, either with uh, with other CubeSats or with um, a much larger mission where the CubeSats are, are a secondary uh, mission. And there are also a lot of CubeSats that get launched from the International Space Station itself. So they will go up as cargo um, and then launched out of the, the Cubo module, uh, just pushed out. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, CubeSats beyond low Earth orbit. Is this also something within the reach of amateurs to, to receive those signals? The Not in the case of Marco A and Marco B, the way that things are today. I, I hesitate there because I, I just don't, I don't know that it was done for Marco A and Marco B. Um, it's not going to be outside of our reach, for sure. I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about uh, amateurs and amateur radio is, is that you really can't, say we can't do it <laughs> there will be a way um in fact uh uh you know the lunar missions um i i think would be the next challenge for uh, for amateurs but at the same time we're also talking about a space where uh, amateur radio operators have been uh, communicating by bouncing signals off of the moon for a long time so you know receiving signals from that are originating from the moon and and are very low power is uh, is a challenge for sure. I'm not going to say it's it's going to be easy for someone just to uh, throw an antenna outside. It's it's definitely more of a challenge, um, but it's not going to be impossible at all. Well, yeah, the one, I mean the one thing that I was thinking of is 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 there any opportunities for interferometry with with like multiple ground stations so that you're building a, a sort of larger dish based on the fact that you've got this a massive array of of coordinated ground stations. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um and this all goes back to that uh, that flexibility in the the software defined radio uh, stick and some of the software that's being uh, being written for that. And you know, coordinating and we do have coordination between uh, ground stations today, uh, but coordinating those signals uh, and using those coordinated signals for for better results is is definitely a, a future opportunity for us yes um, or uh there <laughs> there's there's uh there are a couple of youtube videos the uh, i'm i'm going to botch this name and i apologize the the Dwingaloo telescope <laughs> uh the the radio uh, telescope observatory has been used as a satnog station itself by just Taking a Raspberry Pi and a little RTL SDR and plugging that into the uh, 
There's some BNC cables. This massive, uh, what is it, a 20-meter dish and, and turning it ever so slowly to, to catch the signal. So um, anything's possible. Wow, that's <laughs> super cool. It really is. Uh, look it up on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, just uh, search for Dwingaloo Satnogs and, and you'll, you'll see it. It's, it's fascinating. So how much data do these satellites transmit? Do I need a super fast internet connection to upload it all, or is it not so much? It's it's not so much uh, today, and and that's actually a big consideration for uh, for future technologies and future methods of processing some of this data, um, because if you if you think of of software defined radio and how the the signal is processed. There is a, that raw signal, that raw pipeline of, of signal, and we're not we're not uploading all of that. Um, it gets processed locally on the Raspberry Pi before it gets gets uploaded, um, and that shrinks the amount of data very considerably. Um, but it also limits some of the the opportunities. Uh, you can't go back to the raw data and look for you know what an anomaly was or, or reprocess that in some way. Um, but yet at the same time, if we were to do that, that would cost a lot in storage as well as be a, a burden on, on home internet connections. So we, we definitely want to, to be sure and, and keep that in mind for um, people who may be in a developing country, for example, or on a cellular connection with, uh, with the uplink. So the data isn't, um, the uplink isn't, isn't too bad. The Typical observatory, maybe uh, about five megabytes of, of data between the compressed audio and, and the artifacts. Um, as far as the, the overall data collected, you know, we've had, um, I think I looked up last night, 83 million data frames have been uh, collected so far. Um, on the SatNogs network itself, through the automation software, we've had a, almost, like, probably days short of 3 million uh, observations that have been collected. Yeah, what's, what's, what's the most exciting project that you've been involved in? And I'm going to sneak one in as well. Is You, you mentioned earlier about naughty, naughty satellite people launching without, without, getting any, um, without getting clearance first. Are, are, you able to, are you able to call them out on it? <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I'm taking note because these are two totally different directions. Yeah, yeah, no, just, sorry, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the most exciting thing I think is it is also the one, one of the easiest uh, observations that that we can make uh, in the network, and and that would be um, anything related to the International Space Station. Uh, the I think the most common uh, thing that to to draw here is that there. There's, there's a program on the space station um, called ARIS, uh, uh, Amateur Radio on the ISS. And that program works to uh, schedule contacts within schools, typically K-12 um, traditional primary age schools. And what they will do is they will arrange a, um, an amateur radio group who is experienced with working on, on satellites, uh, to show up there at the school or or at a location where they can set up uh, proper gear, and they will they'll set up the temporary antennas, uh, set up the radios, have all of the the school children there in in a gymnasium, 
and have over the course of a 10 to 15 minute you know, pass of the ISS, they will have a group of students ask questions of the astronauts. And then the astronauts will, will answer over, over radio. Now, from where SatDogs is concerned, you know, that's to us, that, that can just be another observation where we are collecting the, the downlink of that, that pass. But in this case, it's a downlink of astronauts talking to school children and, and answering questions. And and you don't you don't hear the uplink because that's not what the frequency that we're listening to and, and oftentimes too far away. Um, but you don't have to hear the question to understand what what was being asked. Um, so for somebody who's new to the project um, and it, this this event happens a couple times a month at least. Uh, so for somebody who's new to the project to have you know, a, a contact from astronauts and to have the, the astronauts voice be picked up by uh, a ground station that they built is is just a pretty cool thing. Um, and then to have that recording on the website to share with uh, with friends. That's uh, yeah. pretty yeah. awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, That's super cool. Yeah. Do you also get the Chinese uh, space station? Yeah, we don't. I don't know. I'm not sure about their frequencies. <laughs> but, and and I hate. I, I don't. I do not want that to be a lead into the other half of that question because I, I really don't know much about their frequencies. But you did ask. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, you know, the the naughty frequency question, and that's that's an ongoing topic. Like that's that's the hot topic of of now. Where what uh, you know what can be done if 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 a Regulating, well, I, I don't want to say regulating, but a a, uh, a body who is is tasked with coordinating frequency use uh, declines a frequency use, and then a satellite launches anyway. You know, at who is going to be uh, responsible for um, any kind of consequence for that? And what are the consequences? Like, once it's in orbit, you know, if there's no kill switch, it's it's too late. So. Um, I think from from a satellite perspective, our our uh, stance is going to be to not uh, uh, not incentivize that type of behavior by not really focusing on data that those satellites are are downlinking. Um, like that's uh, yeah, as well as from a policy perspective, trying to work with the governing bodies and say, yeah, hey, this this is a it's an annoyance today, but if you multiply it by yeah. constellations 10 years from now it's going to be a huge problem yeah so so essentially if 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 i was to launch my own cubesat and and i really hadn't bothered with coordinating my frequencies i i'd expect the cold shoulder from satnogs yes absolutely yeah, okay. as as well as a few <laughs> nasty tweets yeah <laughs> look at this idiot <laughs> but, and and i do want to be clear like it's it's not uh we we're very cautious about Making it non-political. It's not about who uh, who launches it or why. It's it's whether or not that that frequency has been coordinated and has been has been vetted. Like that's you know we we don't want to be the decider of that. Um, and and in some cases, you know, we we do have to uh, remind people this. If this is not it's not political. If this is just um, we want it to be open and accessible for everyone on on Earth, and for that to happen, we at some point have to agree to share that uh, that spectrum. Yeah, you have to make. I presume you have to make spectrum choices. I mean, this is 
that someone has to do it in terms of right. prioritizing <laughs> what gets what gets the spectrum and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you, yeah. but but Satnogs doesn't want to really get themselves embroiled in that political decision. No, we don't. Um, I. I'm sure. I'm sure we would love to. <laughs> there are people who would definitely love to. I'm sure, but uh, at the same time, the you know that's that's what the the International Telecommunication Union is set up for um, initially. And you know, there are some radio frequencies uh, that impact us globally. And if any one country were to try and monopolize said frequency, you know, it would would be useless for for everyone. So that's why that uh, that governing body was organized. SpaceX is now talking about space lasers. Is this optical communication also something you can, you're looking into? It's not something that, that we have been looking into from a SATNOGS perspective specifically. Um, the it, it's, it's definitely something that I, I've heard interest in. Uh, the, the challenge there is, is going to be uh, just that receiving point. And I know that uh, I'm not sure. I haven't heard of SpaceX working on any kind of laser downlink, but I know that they no. I, it's inter intersatellite, right? Intersatellite, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, but there are some some cool NASA projects where they do high high bandwidth transmission to to the ground. Right, and I, most of our effort there has been looking at uh, higher frequencies still. So the next challenge for us is uh, S band frequencies, uh, two gigahertz type uh, type stuff. You know, the, the higher you go, the more bandwidth you can you can make use of, and the more data you can downlink. Um, but at the same time, the more difficult it's it's going to be to to receive um, to pick up. So, yeah, there there are there's actually a, a thread going on this this weekend uh, over some amateur radio satellites that do uh, data relaying, um, and there's there's some effort to uh, to relay from. You know the ground to a satellite to another satellite back to the ground, uh, and these are 1,200 baud data packets. Like we're not talking about something super high bandwidth or or big. Uh, they're very brief bursts of, of very small data. So where's the best place people can find out about Satnogs and and get involved? Yeah, so the main sat uh, webpage is satnogs.org. Uh, the Libre Space Foundation is at uh, libre.space. Uh, our forums page is uh, community.libre.space. Uh, we have a very active community on uh, uh, the Matrix chat network. Uh, that's uh, all linked to from from the websites as well. Um, definitely jump in, you know, say hi, uh, get involved, troll through the docs, ask questions, and that's um, yeah. Love to get more people involved. We have to point out to the listeners that you've got up ridiculously early to do this. <laughs> no, it's a lot of fun. I, I I love this stuff. It's it's great. Um, and like like I said, I, I'm a volunteer, and, and this is kind of my weekend thing. So here I am enjoying my weekend. It's great. Well, thank well, thanks very much for for telling us all about. Yeah. And Sven, thanks very much for <laughs> pushing this one onto the onto the podcast. It's it's, it's been re really fascinating. I'm I'm going to have to do. I am so tempted to build my own antenna now for sure. Yeah, it was like a selfish <laughs> thing for me because I also wanted to learn about this so <laughs> yeah definitely do it yeah uh, get get a ground station up online start receiving things and uh before you know it, you're going to be uh yeah. you, you'll have a whole space station going up 
<laughs> it's another it's another hobby that starts off cheap and then ends up <laughs> with a, with a, yeah that, like i said it's it, there's you got that simple antenna and and that that first real observation is it's a gateway drug and you're gonna you'll have a, i'll have a yeah a chasing do, a dome covering yeah some <laughs> motorized exactly. antennas <laughs> just having a cool tracked antenna pointing at the sky and suddenly moving must be very you know intriguing it, what's it what's it, it receiving right now I, I live off in the country um, in in the Midwest here here in the United States, and my I, I get a lot of questions from my neighbors. Like they they don't know what TV channels I'm able to pick up with this antenna, but but they're sure it's it has something to do with the TV. <laughs> All right. Well, well, well. Thanks very much. Well, I'll okay. let you get off to get some more coffee. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Sven, for bringing this up. Thank you, Matt, for the time. This is it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Corey. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive there we go there we go i really enjoyed that sven and and i I still feel guilty about getting Corey up so early it was kind of early for me (laughs) (laughs) it was yeah it was early for me i'm not quite sure what i was thinking but uh it was seemed to be the time that we could do it right so it kind of just leaves us to wrap this up so yeah we'll we'll make this a we'll we'll do a part two of this we'll do a part two where we'll, we'll talk about some of the payloads and some of the famous cubesats and and some of the propulsion and an attitude control because they're, they're also yeah. they're also interesting yeah well we definitely talk about magna talkers reaction wheels oh all the forms of thrusters that you can have i mean i i i spent two i went down the rabbit hole for about two hours looking at the different types of thrusters and they're just like unbelievable <laughs> i'm so excited looking yeah. at, 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 at like the kind of mini ion thrusters so what do you think about solar sailing? Well, so and solar sailing. I'd like to get to get the inside information why the current satellite can't raise its orbit and just fly away. You know, I think the attitude control is not good enough. Seriously, Sven, do you know the website you have to go to? Indeed, I know. I've, oh, yes. I've been there before. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's actually two. One of them is www.interplanetary.org.uk, mm-hmm. and the other one is patreon.com slash interplanetary that is right if you want to see the notes i'll put some pretty pictures and i'll put loads of links there are so many great links for this for this particular episode so i'll put loads of links in the uh, in the in the notes this week and some pretty pictures things like marco's picture of mars is just extraordinary and and the picture of the russian cosmonaut lobbing a Keep that into space is pretty cool as well. Yeah. I wonder if he stays around long enough if he will come back and hit him on the back of his head. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. orbital, orbital mechanics work like that? I think I think it is something like that. If he threw it hard enough. Yeah. Uh, so, It'll take a few days. The um uh so yeah, that that that's it. Thanks very much for uh joining me, Sven. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. I can't wait for, I can't wait for part two because actually part two has probably got the exciting stuff like the the sensors and all those kind of things so sven even more exciting well it's just started to rain here now (laughs) you know it started sunny and now it's raining so i've got to i've got to finish off doing some i'm i'm kind of doing a bit of diy at the moment so i've got to finish doing some of that that stuff okay that's cool yeah so everyone your own satellite probably yeah (laughs) oh well i I must admit I'm, i'm trying to think of if if we could do if if you can build a CubeSat for under a thousand dollars, this might actually yeah. be a a project that's feasible for a interplanetary yeah. podcast. 
Or maybe you do like a podcast cube uh, set from a few space-related podcasts together. Yeah. Maybe oh. it could be a radio podcast and just broadcast latest episodes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, a, a combined podcast cube set would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Oh Absolutely. my gosh, there we go. It would be killer. It would be killer. So yeah, I'm going to be working on that idea from now on. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Let's do it. That's it. Bye, bye, Spudcats, including Sven. Bye, bye. <laughs>